Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Aramon in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor. If you're watching or listening to this, you probably know that already. Now, um, for the last sort of 17 months or so, we've been in the middle of a pandemic. You probably noticed that as well. Nobody wants to hear journalists moaning except for journalists themselves, right? So I decided that uh, I was going to do the opposite. I was going to start on a positive note with young Mr. Pete C. Carroll, who was on this podcast in his very infancy, and ask him, Pete, you've made it. You have a new deal. What's happening? Uh, yeah, I mean, pretty good. Pretty good, I think. You know, you were uh, you and Ariel Hawani were pretty much guiding me through uh, unemployment there for, for about a year. So uh, it's great to be on with some good news this time instead of more doom and gloom. But uh, a pleasure to be on with you, Phil. And honestly, thanks so much for all your help over the last year. Well, and even beyond the last year, but um, just certainly over the last I year. I don't because... do it for you. I do it for your partner, Elaine. Just one for two. About that. <laughs> the greatest woman in the world. <laughs> it's true. But tell but, us, um, so, so obviously we'll get to, you know, what went wrong during the pandemic in a second, right? But in the last few weeks, uh, you signed a deal, which is, you know, very much at the, sort of the, the breaking end of the wave, if you like, of what's happening in journalism and on the internet and that kind of thing. So you've signed with The Ringer uh, and Spotify Green Room. Could you just explain just a little bit about what you're going to be doing for those guys? Yeah, so we're, uh, myself, along with my former colleagues from MMA Fighting, Ariel Owani and Chuck Mendenhall, we're going to be kind of uh, one of the, the big shows on this new green room after Spotify have bought it used to be locker room, very American sports centric, but now it's, it's gone to Spotify and it's going to have all a range of topics covered as well as sport, but we're going to be kind of like the MMA arm of the ringer. So the idea is before big pay-per-views will go on uh, before the fight for a pre-fight show. And then directly after the pay-per-view, I mean, the pay-per-view is stopping. We go on straight away. Joe Rogan's interviewing whoever we're on immediately there everyone can come in and join us in the green room for the live chat and then afterwards that chat will be kind of modified edited into a podcast which will be available straight away as well so it's uh it's very exciting obviously i've worked with both the lads before i've been a guest on ariel's espn show his mma fighting show and everything in between for a long long time so it's it's really cool to be working with two guys i really idolized from the get-go when I started in this business. So I'm really, really excited about it. And it's been a horrific year. And you told me to keep the faith. And I did. And I'm I'm really happy something this good has come of it. This is actually two months before my projected timeline for you was that something yeah. like this would happen to you at the beginning of September this year. And it actually happened two months beforehand. So I'm happy to be proven right in that. But if you can just go back, Peter, to when you, you mentioned your former colleagues at MMA Fighting, obviously you'd landed a dream gig at what is essentially the biggest MMA website or dedicated MMA website in the world. What happened at the start of the pandemic? How did they sort of eventually sort of uh, <laughs> throw you to one side, so to speak? Um. You know, it, yeah, it was a dream gig, 100%. I was kind of put on the dream team of MMA uh, media with, you know, Ariel, Luke Thomas, Mark Raimondi, Shane Alshadi, Chuck Mendenhall, Esther Lynn, Casey Lloyd. And like, I mean, these people, you're what you're consuming their content for maybe a decade and then you're on the same team as them. Absolutely unbelievable. You, you know, Jose is going to listen to this now and say, you didn't mention Jose Youngs and he's going to take that personal. So I'm going to put his name in there. But you he wasn't on the team out. when I joined. Okay. 
that's that's valid. That's okay. I got. Can I just point out that I got to work with amazing people like Jose Young, <laughs> <laughs> Jed Meshu, Alex Kaylee, all these amazing people. Brian Tucker, the editor. Um, you know, look, the, who's who? And I kind of came in, and I was the the European guy. Like, if news came out in Europe, I, I'd be doing that. And it, and I think a, a big thing was, of course, McGregor was fighting Mayweather at that time when I got signed. And I think I was able to get inside access from the camp there. And that's what was really beneficial to me during the interview process. But, you know, eventually Ariel went to ESPN, Mark went to ESPN, Chuck and Shaheen went to the Athletic. Luke Thomas went to Showtime. And I became the main guy all of a sudden there. And Phil will know how bad I am with all. Like, I mean, I was a one-man band with a camera and a microphone for a long time. Didn't know how to use any of it. So to, to end up as the main guy. To be an aerial spot essentially with that amazing team of Esther and Casey was was complete was was very overwhelming, but we got it done in the end. And and Esther and Casey were really happy with me. We brought Jose in then to kind of the two man band in in front of the camera. It was all going amazing. And then, do you remember March of 2020? They cancelled UFC London. Yes, I was supposed to go to UFC London, and I said to them. Guys, I don't know what's going on here. You know, like, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get back into the country the way things are going. Because yeah. it was very unknown. Like, that was when everything was happening. And I, I, I was convinced already that the event wasn't happening. Although they only cancelled a few days before it, it happened in the end. But, uh, yeah, so that happened and that began the kind of all the events being gone for maybe two months. And then they were coming back in May. I think everybody was like, thank God. They're coming back in May, but subsequently in May, I got an email from the Vox legal department saying I would not, uh, they would not be renewing my contract. So that was the end of it. You know, that was the first I heard of it. Obviously heartbreaking. Uh, myself and Elena just moved home from our apartment because we thought we were, you know, we're trying to get the mortgage together, which is exceptionally difficult in Ireland. Anyway, never mind when you're self-employed. Um, but yeah, so that's that's really kind of put us back uh, a couple of years in that situation. But look, it, it's led to a good good thing in the end, I guess, with the Ringer and Spotify now. Did it come as a shock to you, Peter, when they mailed you and said, "Look, we won't be able to renew your contract"? Absolutely. I'll, um, you know, couldn't believe it. Thought it was a mistake. I rang the editor and I said, "Is this real?" <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah." And I was like, "How how is this the first I'm hearing about it?" You know. Yeah. Um. I don't know how it worked. Apparently, uh, they they just basically cut all international contractors. Vox did as soon as that happened to kind of, um, you know, keep keep the staff that they could that were on full time. They just bring in a they had just brought in a union. I mean, literally two months before, but that only catered to full time staff that were in the US. Yeah. So they couldn't get rid of any of them, you know, because the union was there <laughs> to protect them. So I ended up getting the bullet, and I really felt like this this was a. This was my time. I've been already in the business over a decade and I finally felt like I was ready. I was, I was finally comfortable with the situation I was being put in. And uh, yeah, it went away and caused me to have a huge dilemma. You know, like when you do something as weird as I do for a living, then you'll know this, Phil. Everybody tries to convince you the whole way that you're doing the wrong thing. Why don't you do football? Why don't you yeah. do rugby? That Brian O'Driscoll, some player. <laughs> so then when it all comes falling apart you feel like they're all right and you are wrong and um yeah massively massively kind of weighing up my options i know i had the phone call to you saying do you do you still think i should do this for a living uh, i know i did that i know i did that to a fair few people but when every, every single every answer was yes. for a year <laughs> yeah yeah but 
you know, it, it was horrible. Like, and um, yeah, really, really bad. But I, I think I'm really happy now. I'm happier. I'm, I'm the most excited I've ever been really about this thing with the ringer and Spotify. So it, it ended in a, on a good note, I suppose. Yeah, I think that, that sign that things are turning around, you know, that's the fact that you had this other wherewithal to stay in it because you didn't actually give up at the time. I remember talking to you and saying, okay, can you contact this person? Can you do that? Rather than saying, can you switch to rugby or fucking sailing or women's hockey or whatever's popular at the time because that's just not what you do, you know. But I actually remember moving to Sweden, uh, what's it, 22 years ago when I moved over here, you know, and I sort of explained to my in-laws what I wanted to do, you know, and that was write books and work in sport. And Way, way back, I think it was about 2000, 2001, I almost ended up as the lead soccer writer for um, a website here that was had invested heavily in Sven Jaren Eriksson, right, who was the England manager at the time, or just about to become England manager. And then the money dried up and that job disappeared, you know. And I remember the suggestion, I still remember it to this day, because every morning when I wake up, it motivates me to go, have you ever thought about driving a bus for a living? And I went, I'm going to drive a fucking bus through that argument for the rest of my life. And, and it hasn't left me, you know. But you started then sort of trying to piece back together because you were a very resourceful freelancer before that. You were working for Irish newspapers and for radio and that kind of thing. So what was the first sort of piece that fell into place in terms of building yourself back up again? Um, that was the bash with Niall. That was one thing. Like we, we basically put the wheels in motion because we'd become the, the focal point of European MMA with, with Eurobash, which we were doing with... Um, Vox Media. I started that up by myself. I remember Ariel going like, they're not going to hold your hand. Just do it. Literally just yeah. record a podcast and give it to them. Say, this is what we're going to be doing. And that's what I did. And it kind of became, so Ariel had his MMA hour, which was also on, on Vox. And he would get all the huge names, right? The, the headliners every weekend are going to Ariel Hawani. But the way I saw, like that's leaving a huge gap in the market for my stomping ground, Europe. And that was something I always wanted to do, put a spotlight on these Europeans, because as rough as the Americans have it, it's way, way worse in Europe. And nobody knows what the sport was until McGregor did what he did. There's no resources, really. I know there is in Sweden, but it's still not recognized in a lot of countries. And, and it's just generally very, very interesting people. So it, it was a hit. It was a huge hit. We were averaging 20,000 downloads a week. That's it was amazing. insane. I remember showing you the numbers once going, is this real? Yeah. <laughs> I going, fell off a chair the first time I heard it. I was like, wow. Yeah. And, and it was great. And I loved it. And it was a lot of work. And it was becoming a real thing. And um, then when MMA fighting obviously um, pulled the contract, I was like, this still has to be a thing. It was me and Noel doing it. And luckily enough, we had uh, Jack Davenport from Goalhanger, uh, Gary Lineker's company, reach out to us. And he really pushed it and made it a reality. Like without them giving us that shove, I don't think it would have happened. And from there we made the bash, which was basically um, like it was a Euro bash on steroids. I thought, I thought it was a, a much better version, but of course we didn't have the, the, the kind of the platform that MMA fighting had this huge platform just with MMA fans um, chomping at the bit for content. So we didn't have that. So we kind of had to build it ourselves after that, um, BT Sports approached me. I did a presenting job for them around Dublin. Luckily for me, Adam and Nick could not get to Dublin due to the pandemic. <laughs> so I was called into action. So I was able to kind of, like, you know, I still have great contacts in McGregor's camp and stuff. I was able to get a few people on board there and kind of do a piece about his charitable donations, which I'm sure was a, a PR move on, on behalf of the UFC as well, because he had taken a knock. This is the show. He's still a good guy. They had, they had, a uh, they had all that lined up for me, just basically to walk in. Can you ring this guy? Can you ring this guy? Can you yeah. ring this guy? I did that. And then after that, um, the BBC, I started presenting the the 
the MMA show for the BBC, um, which was kind of sporadic, maybe three times. And then in the meantime as well, uh, as you know, I was developing this documentary series with uh, the guys from Dublin Old School. It was so bizarre. I, everything was happening. I was trying to do as much stuff as I could. Um, but then this came up. Uh, sorry. And then in December, MMA on point, who would become a regular gig. These kind of innovative, innovative dudes who basically just thrive in the YouTube space. It's unbelievable. The numbers that they get are, are wild. It's something completely different to me. I'm writing scripts, doing voiceovers. Now, we have done some on-site video shoots as well, which I'm really excited to do more of. But uh, that that's going to become my my main my main gig at the moment until now the ringer has come along. But uh, yeah, very, very challenging few few uh, a year. And I'm very happy that I got to work with these people. I'll continue to work with MMA on point. And um and yeah, I'll be doing the ringer now as well. So it was it was a challenging 12 months, but I, I met some great people who were able to keep me on track doing this for a living. Do you miss writing at all, Peter? Because it's a long time since, you know, I mean, I remember you working for a local paper back in Dublin and sort of getting your start that way, talking to Conor McGregor before he'd ever even have a fight, let alone a professional fight, you know? Uh, do you miss that? Because, I mean, you always had this of the, the, the nuts and bolts of writing was always something that you really had a good grasp of. Is that something you want to get back to or are you happy enough with the podcasting and the broadcasting end of things? It's interesting. Like, I was talking to Ariel about this. Like, it's interesting that nearly everyone that comes to me, like, it's just the way the world seems to be going. I think like everyone just wants video or a podcast and, and things like that. And what I found at MMA fighting was I, I was kind of, you know, Chuck Mendenhall and Shaheen Al-Shadi, I think they're the two best feature writers in the history of the MMA. So some in sport, like they've done some things that are right up there with the very best articles ever written in sport, I feel. So there wasn't a need for me to do it as much there, but I did a few but the problem is when you're working for these websites, they want to churn out eight articles a day, 200 words. You know, like they, they have no interest in you going, I wrote this 2,500 word piece. Like, unless you're Al Shadi or you're, you're Mendenhall, like they're just going to be like, we don't care about that, PZ. Um, but that was originally what I wanted to do. That was all, that was what I started. I, I did a lot of that with voice. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, I started out with the Dublin Gazette paper. So there was all these different catchment areas. And every time, every like this was 2010 or so, and every time they'd be short something, I would be coming close to the deadline. I'll be like, I know an MMA fighter from Swords who's fighting this weekend, or I know an <laughs> MMA fighter from Luke. And, and uh, they used to piss themselves laughing, but in the end, they'd have to take it because there was nothing else. They had to fill that 300 words or whatever. <laughs> and that was such a big deal to the fighters because they, they were getting no respect from the mainstream. And I can remember Tony McGregor back then used to uh he used to facebook message me and say thank you so much and he'd have connor ring me to say thank you for featuring him connor might ring you at four o'clock in the morning on a wednesday but he'd always ring you you know what i mean or if you booked an interview it'd be ringing at like seven o'clock in the morning on a, on a thursday and he's like just always the wildest times ever but that that's really how i got segued into mma and of course my brother is a massive fan of mma and he was a really good jiu-jitsu player at the time when nobody really was yeah. so I had a lot of influences kind of pushing me towards it since the early 2000s with the US and the Japanese scene. But the Irish scene only kind of came about 2009, 2010. I had an interest in that. How has it changed over the years, Peter? Because, you know, like now the access is limited, right? Because, you know, Connor won't talk to any of us really anymore. Um, I think he talked the last time I sat down with him was when uh, the Notorious documentary came out. And that's because the production team is basically friends of ours and they realize the value in talking to people. So they got us in there sort of the top of the list kind of thing. So and we also have a situation now where there's young fighters coming through who seem to think 
um, that, you know, they have earned things that they haven't yet earned is the nicest way I can put it. You know, um, you ask them for interviews and they go, you know, talk to my PR person, that kind of thing, at which point my interest cools considerably when that happens. You know, how have you seen it change? Do you still have as much fun covering the sport as you always did? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with the Irish scene is really a, a litigation issue at this stage. I mean, it's it's all sewn up with, with Sport Ireland and and uh, the association here, I guess, that was started by John Kavanagh. And I had some serious issues with that association because they used to say, like, why aren't you covering this? I was the only person in fucking Ireland covering the thing. Yeah. And then as soon as I wanted certain questions answered, they just stonewall me. For instance, when the issue with Habib and Connor happened the post fight melee all that stuff like the next day in the papers people were writing sports editors from the biggest papers in the world are going this sport should be banned and i'm like where's the reaction mm. you're not you're just going to leave that there that this is a supposed association that's looking for regulation and the national papers are saying ban it and you are saying nothing like wh- what do you want me to do here you have to do something and then did Stonewall, you're saying nothing. And I thought that was pathetic. And I told them that I went to the AGM and I stood up and I told them, you don't know what you're doing. It's disgraceful, to be honest. And, um, you know, it's changed hands. I don't think Kavanaugh's in charge anymore. And look, he was probably spinning too many plates, running the gym, whatever, working for Bellator. I mean, not working for Bellator and doing other other things along the way. Like they have a new, a new head, I believe, who's really working hard to get at some, some kind of, you know, just some type of credibility, I guess. So that's all good. But yeah, I think that's what happened when, when Joe Carvalho passed away, there be, there became a kind of a, a battle to get it recognized by the government. And until it is recognized by the government, we're not going to have the same thriving scene that created the likes of Conor McGregor, Paddy Hoolan, Chris Fields, Carl Pendred, Ashton Daly, Neil Seary, Paul Redmond. Like Phil, there used to be fights here every two weeks. Mm. You'd be in the Regency, you'd be down, you'd be up North, you'd be down in Cork, you'd be somewhere. And it was just this little community. And you'd be buzzing for these fights. You'd be buzzing for these fights more than you'd be buzzing for the UFC at the weekend. And, and I still kind of have that. My favorite thing about the sport is finding the prospects. Because McGregor was a prospect when I first met him. You know, he was maybe 2-0, just something like that. Yeah. And to know, to have that feeling like, I know and you don't fucking know. Yeah. That's what I love about it. That's the and, thing and about that's why I love Cage Warriors. Yeah. You know, Cage Warriors being the, the main feeder to the UFC in the UK and Ireland I much prefer those events in the UFC now. I was at an event at Vesteros with the guys from Front Kick Online, who you know well, and uh, I was looking at this girl, Josephine Knutson, and she was just fantastic. And I remember seeing her and thinking, I, I got there ahead of you and ahead of Niall and ahead of Sean Sheen and Dan Hardy and Ariel Hawani. I've seen her fight. And I remember saying to her coaches afterwards, going, this kid has it. You know, she's got, no, she's having, already she's having problems getting fights. But like you say, to be on, on at ground zero, when you see a talent like that getting into the cage for the first time, you know, it's just, it's incredible. There is a buzz about that as well. Like you say, it beats all the big stadium nights and, you know, Madison Square Garden or, or, or the MGM Grand or whatever, you know, but, if you look at it, sort of, you know, zoom out a little bit now. This deal for you, you're based in Europe, right? So you're going to be doing the UFC pay-per-views. It's going to be, you know, they're going to be ending at like seven o'clock in the morning your time. And you're going to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed going, well, Ariel, uh, what did you think of that? You hurry up because I'm going to be cornflakes and going to bed. How's that going to work for you, do you think? Well, I'm going to have to set up in the sitting room. <laughs> um, so I don't want to wake up everyone else. And um, yeah, I, I mean, he said to me, like, are you, he goes, you know, I've often talked to you at six o'clock in the morning, you know, after these events and you're, you're full of beans. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, do you think that would be okay? And I'm like, I'm dying for an opportunity like this. So I was like, it won't be a problem. Like, you know, Philip, and 
oh, for over 10 years, I'm staying up till God knows what hour. This time I'll just be talking shit a little bit afterwards. You know, that's as far as I can see it. Like, um, but I think it's a real clever thing they're doing because, you know, there is this gap. There used to be anyway. Well, there is between Ariel's MMA era, which landed on the Monday and the fights ending on a Saturday where people want, like, especially if something wild happens, say the Habib, Connor post-fight melee, when something like that happens, people are just, you can't go to sleep after that, no matter what time a day it is. And you want something to, to consume. You want to just talk about it. You want to hear people talking about it. And I think that's what we're going to have there. People can get onto <clears throat> the green room app and, and join us live to hear us talking about this. And this is, you know, Ariel and Chuck, two of the best minds in the world for this kind of stuff, how they break things down. And, and it's going to be there on Spotify for them as soon as they wake up on Sunday morning, if they do choose to go to bed. But I think that's the really cool thing about this. It, it, it's straight to the fans immediately after the event. And, and I think there is something there for that, you know, because the Europeans don't get the post-fight element that they do in, for ESPN and everything over there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited about it. You know, I'm desperate to impress them. You know, I really want to deliver. That's the main thing. You know, the thing is that, that, is, that is the thing with you as well, that you don't want to just do a good job. You want to do the best job. You want to do the absolute best job possible. And that's what makes you so valuable in those situations. But I actually remember back at the start of the pandemic saying this to yourself and Niall, just in a, in a general sporting sense, that having something like that where you go on YouTube and you react straight away at five or six o'clock on a Saturday to whatever soccer was happening. Now, as it happened, there was no fucking sport happening for about three or four months there. But so that killed that idea. But that idea of the, you know, the, the immediacy of it, I think it's brilliant because especially with pay-per-view in the states you have a situation where people tend to sit at home and they might be watching on their own or one or, or two other people whereas the, the fun in these things is deconstructing them afterwards you know if you've gone to a game or if you've gone to a night of fights in the national stadium or whatever to go into one of the pubs around the corner and to sit down and to talk about what you've, you've just seen and to process that is as much a part of the experience as it is to actually be there and see it happening you know i mean that's that's the big thing in Vegas as well, you know, that we all tend to scatter to the four winds because we're going back to hotel rooms and it's BBC Radio 5 at whatever in the middle of the night over there and it's RTE and news talking. That. So we don't often get to do that ourselves either because we're so buried into the work, but now you're actually going to get to do that live. And um, About this green room thing, do you bring in people, like listeners as well, so they can ask their own questions, right? Yeah, I think that's going to be really cool. Um, is, so is that I... not the equivalent of handing a monkey a machine gun at that hour of the night? <laughs> Well, we were we were talking to the producers from Green Room and they said it's not quite like Twitter. You know, on, on Twitter, people say the nastiest shit in the world yeah. and they they don't feel any remorse about it. But when you're on a direct line and it's us going, hey, what's up? It's, you know, David from Brentford or whatever it is like they don't. It's not like that. It becomes a kind of a more human exchange at that stage. So they said so far with the with the kind of NBA shows they've done and stuff like that. There hasn't been too much of that, but I don't mind. You know, I like an old slagging match and those Yanks can't hang with me. They want to talk shit about me. I'll tear them a new arsehole, Phil. So if that's what they want to do. But the other thing with the NBA, Peter, is there you're not going to get, right? The Brits and the Irish are coming this weekend, you know? <laughs> and when that starts to happen there, you're talking about people six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, skinfuls of whiskey and beer and cider and various other uh, substances controlled under law. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you're going to let them on the air. I can't wait. I'm not saying, no, don't do this. I can't wait to see how this well, goes. Like, I, I think it will add to it. Like, you know, I personally, I, I like a bit of wellness, you know. I'm sure they will uh, smooth it all. They'll smooth it all out for the Spotify version when it becomes a podcast. But 
I think that will be a bit of crack, you know. And and Ariel, to his credit, is very good at talking some shit too. I've seen the man have many about there on social medias. There's something Irish about that man. I'll tell you that much. Apart from his support of the three lines, that is. There is. And I think he's kind of out of that now. He's out from under the shadow of MMA fighting and ESPN because I know he's done deals with Substack and with YouTube and all these other people as well. So he's very much his own man now. I heard him talking to Sean Sheen and he was saying, look, you can say what you want about his former colleague, Daniel Cormier now, because, you know, I'm not in that boat anymore. And are you expecting him to be a lot more sort of uh, free in what he's able to say now when he doesn't have those responsibilities, you know, an editor sitting over his shoulder going, oh, be careful now, that might uh, not be the right thing to say. Yeah, and to be to be fair, like, uh, I always thought he was kind of unfairly criticised. Like, when he was in, with MMA fighting, this was when he was the, the number one provocateur in the media. You know, this is when he was causing absolute shitstorm nearly every week. So I think, obviously, when, when you go to somewhere like ESPN and they're the broadcast partner with the UFC, I don't want to speak for him, but it felt like for me as a guy who've, who's watched Ariel for the last decade, and I've told him this personally, so I don't think you'll mind me saying it. I always felt like there was some issue, some topics that would come up and I'd be like, that is 50% of what he can give this. You know, that he's only given me 50% of what he truly feels. And you can really see it in his face. It was killing him. Like he wanted to fucking go in. Left line. But it's just, and he did go in, but he just didn't go in with such um, viciousness as he usually would. So, um, I think he'll 100%. Look, look, he didn't really... It's not like a herd of stock being at ESPN. He's a bigger name than he ever was. But I do feel like if if people only started consuming him when he went to ESPN and they're going to now start consuming him with MMA fighting again when he goes to MMA Hour and obviously with the ringer for us and Substack, all of this thing, I think they'll note uh, a definite amping up of the aggression from Ariel Hawani because to his credit... People say he doesn't ask the hard questions, and I think that's bollocks. And people say he doesn't put people in the gallows when they need to be put there. I think he's always done that, more so than anyone in the MMA space. The MMA space, you're, you know this, Phil. You're, you're as real as it comes, man. They don't even let you into an event unless, you know, you, you know you're, you're kissing their asses. Mm. Like, I mean, there's so many things wrong with this sport, and it, it's never brought up at these events. And it never will be because they just don't let people in that, that want to know the answer to these questions. We, we were there in, in Vegas when they asked McGregor about the, the sexual assault, the alleged sexual assault that appeared in New York Times, and the fans booed the question. Yeah. Like, they don't even ask them. We don't want to... There's, there's just part of the fight game that people just want it. They don't really want you to put it under the spotlight, you know? They just don't want to Just let it exist and where it is, this crazy carnival life. It's kind of like the kayfabe thing, though, you know, where you don't break it. You know, we just want to get on with the entertainment of it. We want to see, you know, as Sean always says, fighter A against fighter B. You know, we want that. We want the narrative. Then we want to move on to, to the next fight and the next fight and the next fight. And real life is not allowed to intrude on this because this is escapism. But the thing is that it's not. It's very much, you know, sort of involved in real life. When I look at, at kids, when I talk to people, when I talk to fighters, when I talk to aspiring fighters, managers, agents, you know, this is very much real life. There's people trying to make a living out of this. And decisions are being made that, you know, like um, I heard of a sponsorship deal today. The USC is getting, I'd love to know what the fighters are going to get out of this particular sponsorship deal. I can't imagine it's very much. And yeah, again, I go back to that point that I've always made about this thing of, you know, like who benefits from this? You know, because I mean, Dana, Dana White's never received a punch in his face in his life for money. And yet he's the richest man in mixed martial arts, you know? And, and, he, and he's one of the biggest names as well. That's what I, it's crazy. Like he's one of the biggest interviews you can get in MMA. Yeah. And he has it built that way. He has it. So the UFC is bigger than any of those fighters. Yeah. And 
it, it's, it's, strange. You know, it's it's in one way it's very skillfully done and i get that that you know, you know you have to value the brand and that but i do think that they would benefit from you know in the way that certain people who make themselves available to the press in a different way you know the olympic committees would be good that way uefa and fifa for all the things that they do and say wrong you can always get them on the end of the phone you might get no comment we're not going to comment on this one but you can always get them whereas with the ufc that's not always the case other organizations i've always found bellator very easy to deal with and cage warriors and here in sweden you have superior challenge and these guys and fight the fight club rush and they you know they like they don't they don't always enjoy it but they'll do it because they understand the benefit of it but you know the ufc has almost become you know the equivalent of the banks in 2008 where they're too big to fail but um you know i i I think that's the main block for becoming a mainstream sport to be quite honest oh yeah it's a disrespect in the media not disrespect but just nonchalance like why do do you need we'll tell you what you need to ask them you know it's it's that's what's blocking it from becoming main like a big 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 time sport i really think that's one of the big issues with it and, and I don't believe, I don't agree with that. It's fighter A versus fighter B because when, when, and I know you don't either, because when you look at all of the sport, at the, the, the fighters from this sport that have transitioned into the broader cultural consciousness, they take on a much bigger meaning than this guy is good at fighting or this girl is good at fighting. Ronda Rousey and um, Conor McGregor, like even Nate Diaz, an icon within the sport, he is so much more than just a fighter. He is, although he is the personification of a fighter, he is way more than that. He's a rebel. It, it, it's it's always something bigger than the sport that they have to re- represent. Even look at where Tyson Fury went from. I know we've talked about this with Graham Merrigan and he didn't like us very much for our opinion on it, but it's the evolution of, of Tyson Fury going from the guy he was to the guy he is now or is perceived to be, that makes him this magical person. And, and then when when his art kind of mirrors his life and that great get-up moment against Deontay Wilder, like, it's it's a goosebump moment. You're like, holy shit, you know? This is big, This is larger than life. It's larger than sport. And that's why people really get involved with sport, when it becomes way bigger. Muhammad Ali, I mean, the list goes on, you know? I mean, that was the thing. I've been reading a lot, as I've been saying over the last year. It's mostly basketball and boxing that I've been reading about for the last while. The history of them, right? So, you know, nothing after 1990, basically. And how entwined that is with the social justice movement in America, you know, where you had black basketball players who wouldn't be served in restaurants in the South. You know, Bill Russell leading the Boston Celtics, the black Boston Celtics player out of there and just leaving town, going, I'm not playing, I'm not putting up with this shit anymore. About being there when Martin King, uh, Martin Luther King made the I Have a Dream speech. And Bill Russell was asked to be on the stage and he said, no, because I haven't earned that right, you know. And Bill Russell became not just the greatest basketball player ever to play the game, sorry, LeBron, but the greatest American ever to walk the earth, right? He wouldn't like that. You know, a lot of people wouldn't like to hear that, but that's basically what he became. The same thing, you know, with Tyson Fury, the same thing with Mike Tyson, not because they're good or bad men, but because of what they came to signify, you know? And that's the thing that's missing. When you control something the way the UFC controls it, right? You have an out gay champion in Amanda Nunes that people barely know about, you know? And whereas they sort of, you know, tolerate this and sometimes they put on the rainbow flag and they wrap themselves in it, you know, the, the level to which or the extent to which that they could make the world a better place for LGBT plus people is just, you know, they go, okay, we'll, we'll go this far, but now we're leaving it because, you know, it just becomes too much. Anderson Silva, the great Brazilian fighter, came out and supported such causes there on Instagram recently and got fucking ratioed beyond belief, you know? So it's crazy. 
Yeah, but there's it's... so much good that they can do, but they choose not to do it. But let's round off, Peter, because I know you're a busy man ahead of this uh, new The Ringer thing. I heard you got a load of new kits that you're going to test. That's basically why. Is this it? Or is it sitting in a box beside you there? Phil, you know as well as I do, you'll be the one testing this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be ringing you going, what the fuck is this thing? Right. Well, I can't, yes, I, well, have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again? That's going to be the first question. No? That was <laughs> always the catchphrase on press row when they sent me in with a camera. Press the button, PT, because I'd just be turning around sweating. Everyone looking at me, you feel... <laughs> I'll be an Oscar in unison. Just press the button, Press the button, PT. Press the button. <laughs> Is the red light on? There has to be a red light on. Otherwise, it's not working. But if you look back and then, you know, look forward a little bit, Peter, you know, this time last year, none of us was um, too confident that we'd be here in a year's time. What do you see a year down the line from you now? A big house in Dublin, I would assume, for Reggie the dog to live in. His own bedroom, his own bathroom. Yeah, like, honestly, like, you know, that's the, that's the, the goal for me is trying to give Elaine, like, you know, all the stuff that normal people with normal jobs kind of get, you know, like I feel tremendous guilt about that, like the amount of sacrifices she's made, you know, for me to to do this for a living. And, you know, it, there's no doubt about it. If I, if I worked in a call center, I'd be in a probably a better situation in terms of assets than I am now. But um, when the situation comes along like this and it's, it's pretty magical, you, you know, it's all going to be sorted out. And, you know, I just hope that, the feeling I had when I signed this deal as I did when I became the, the main man for my fight. And I just hope it can last. And I believe it can. And I believe it can turn into a bigger thing. And I really want to get um my European-centric podcast going again because I think I do that better than anyone. They all tried to copy me after I went away. <laughs> oh, suddenly we all like Cage Warriors and KSW. I see you as pricks. And I'm coming back to fuck your shit up. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell that very Conor McGregor light bombshell there PT it's been a pleasure as always and you know you can WhatsApp me at 4 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock on a Thursday morning I don't mind anytime pal thanks for talking to me I love you Phil and thanks so much for everything honestly you're you're a huge mentor to me you're one of my idols and um, thanks for everything you do to do for me I really appreciate it I love you too <laughs>